We were fortunate. I have not lost any of my patients in my panel. I have about 1,900 patients, give or take, and I did not lose any of my personal patients. Despite that, I cannot think of any patient in my panel who was not affected by COVID, whether it was losing one of their loved ones or financial insecurity, food insecurity, job insecurity. I mean, there was so many facets of this disease that affected people on such different levels. We are not going to conquer this. This is something that we are going to have to live with. It has become quite clear to me that for whatever reason, and the reasons are varied, that certain individuals are very reluctant to get vaccinated. And so I worry that this will be with us for a long period of time. And I worry about the toll it is going to take on people's mental health and the economy and so on and so forth. This is the Language of Business, a podcast to inform and inspire entrepreneurs, anyone thinking about a startup or anyone looking for a post-pandemic pivot. I'm executive producer Don Kelly. Our host is Greg Stoller, Harvard MBA and senior lecturer at Boston University Questrom School of Business. In this episode, we speak with two frontline doctors about the vaccination debate. First, an internist at Newton Wellesley Hospital who has 1,900 patients and only three days a week to see them. Then an assistant professor at Tufts University School of Medicine who looks at ways to deal with the objection. Here's Greg Stoller. Don, thank you. So much of the news these days is how individuals are being affected by COVID, their businesses, their lives, their health. But what about the physicians and nurses who are taking care of all of us? How are they handling this? And frankly, how are they managing their different slates of patients? We're on location virtually with Dr. Liza Meyerhart, internist at Newton Wellesley Hospital, and welcome to the Language of Business. Thanks for having me, Greg. Nice to have you here. So how are you holding up so far? I think I'm doing fairly well. It was much more challenging a year ago when we didn't know what we were contending with and we were kind of thrown into the mouth of the dragon, so to speak. I was working virtually and then I was working in the COVID wards because they actually needed people who were not inpatient doctors to step up and come work on the front lines. So that was something I hadn't done in 17 years. And that was scary and exhilarating. And I think we've come a long way, but it's a little daunting to be taking a step backwards right now in August of 2021. And are you back seeing patients in person and are they back seeing you in person? Yes. So we were doing a hybrid model where we were doing about 30% of our visits virtually and one or two days kind of in person. And now I've transitioned to fully in person. And approximately what percentage of your patients that you see are vaccinated? It's a good question. And I had to take a poll of my fellow doctors. You know, we live in Needham where there's about a 98% vaccination rate and my office happens to be in Needham as well. We believe it's around 90 to 93% approximately of our patients. It's a very, very high number. And of the 7% that aren't vaccinated, does anybody know why? It's a really good question and something that all of us feel is the crux of our job at this point is being educators and trying to really understand the why and trying to dispel some of the misconceptions about the vaccine. And how are you doing that with the elusive 7%? a really good question. I came up against someone for my first time last week who was openly against vaccination of COVID specifically. And I had to internally dialogue with myself to take a moment and take a deep breath because my initial inclination was like to lurch across the exam room, which I didn't think was going to go very well. The most important thing is really to get a sense of what it is that they're afraid of or what they feel the vaccine is going to do to them. I think it's really important to let them have space to talk honestly about what they're worried about. And then our Our job as scientific people is to really provide data that's digestible in little sound bites that can 
explain why the science works and explain how the vaccine came to fruition faster than any other vaccine in our history, which I think is one of the points that a lot of people bring up as to why they're nervous. You really have to appeal to people on a personal level. I don't think they care that it's a doctor talking to them. They certainly don't care if it's the president of the United States. I mean, they really want to hear from people that live in their communities. A lot of it is also connecting them with other people who may come from similar backgrounds and may be able to shed some more light on their situation. If that patient came to you and said, I need your help, in my decision not to get vaccinated, I could lose my job. And if I lose my job, I could lose my house and I could put my family's welfare at stake. How would you respond to him, her, or them? So it's a very good question. And obviously there are a lot of reasons, as I've said, that people choose not to be vaccinated. And part of my job as a physician is to meet people halfway in many situations. But this, I feel like, is a more global responsibility. And I do not think that I could put my medical license on the line and write anything in a document where I would condone not being vaccinated because I really tried hard to think of any situations in which I would not recommend vaccination. And I honestly cannot think of any. In preparing for our interview, I probably read a hundred different studies, some of which indicated that unvaccinated people are spreading COVID-19 more so than vaccinated ones. Others are saying the jury is still out. What is your thought on that question, please? It's a good question. And I think that the science has changed and our understanding of the variants has changed the answer to that. So if you had asked me that a month ago, I would have said being vaccinated is not only the best safeguard against getting sick, but it also is nearly impossible to spread the virus. We knew that from some Israeli studies and certainly from local studies. And I think we felt fairly confident that it was much less likely to spread, that the viral load in the nares or inside the nose of vaccinated people was significantly less than that in unvaccinated people. But unfortunately, data this week and largely obtained from studying the province town Delta flare in the last month has shown us that vaccinated people can spread the virus and that their viral loads are equal, if not higher, than some unvaccinated people with the Delta variant. This kind of changes the game completely and is one of the most alarming new pieces of data that's come out recently and really changed how we think about the evolution of this disease. Have you and your colleagues unfortunately lost a number of your patients to COVID? We were fortunate. I have not lost any of my patients in my panel. I have about 1,900, give or take, and I did not lose any of my personal patients. But I would say that despite that, I cannot think of any patient in my panel who was not affected by COVID, whether it was losing one of their loved ones or whether it was financial insecurity food insecurity, job insecurity. I mean, there was so many facets of this disease that affected people on such different levels that despite the fact that I may not have lost anyone, I think that we've spent every visit since last year really talking about how COVID has affected people in so many different ways. Do you know, unfortunately, if people are dying, are they comorbidity type patients or are they young and healthy? What has that data uncovered so far? So that data has been interesting. I mean, a year ago in March and April, when I was working in the hospital, we didn't really know what the comorbidities were going to be that put people at the highest risk. Of course, we thought of things like underlying heart disease, underlying malignancy, and we were very suspect about underlying pulmonary disease, lung disease, so asthma, smokers, emphysema. Interestingly, one of the biggest risk factors was actually body mass index. So being overweight or being obese was one of the largest risk factors for poor outcome. And I will say that when I was working 
working in the hospital, the young people that were in the intensive care unit last year that were really fighting for their lives had an average body mass index of over 35 to 40. So they were really outside the norm. And that seemed to be the biggest risk factor aside from some of the other obvious ones that we talked about. But that's kind of another counseling point when I'm speaking to patients about trying to get their health in check. It's really important. Dr. Meyerhart, thank you so very much. Thank you. Dr. Liza Meyerhart, internist at Newton Wellesley Hospital and one of the frontline physicians working alongside our nurses, protecting people from COVID-19. Dawn, back to you. Thanks, Greg. Next up, an assistant professor of medical education at Tufts University on how to deal with vaccination resistance when the language of business continues. I didn't even realize what it meant to be in a top tier business school until my first day. The curriculum at Questrom is really helpful because you get to not only study the basics of business such as accounting or marketing, but you really get to dive further in and to see applications of the health sector and how business applies to sustainability efforts around the world. They really want us to kind of focus on four emerging areas, and those areas were healthcare, security, sustainability, and technology. Those are really where the jobs are going to be. They really want us to come out from the Questrom School of Business and be able to work in any area of the industry. Interested? Go to bu.edu slash Questrom. A lot of people have welcomed the opportunity to get a COVID vaccination, but not everyone. An assistant professor at Tufts University School of Medicine looks at ways to deal with the objection. Back to Greg Stoller. Thank you, Don. How do you keep everybody educated about the pluses and minuses of COVID-19? We're on location with Dr. Carol Bascom-Slack, Assistant Professor of Medical Education at Tufts University, and welcome to the Language of Business. Thank you. Carol, how do you keep either students or colleagues educated about what's happening with all things COVID? First and foremost, we make sure that our students are grounded in good scientific understanding of virology and immunology. And that actually begins long before they come to me at the lower grades, where it's really important to make sure that students know where to get accurate information. I think there's a lot of misinformation floating around. And if you don't know where to go to get good information, you can be confused pretty easily. But yeah, I think it's important that students just understand the science of any contemporary health issue that we're facing. And how do you ferret out what is misinformation versus real information? That's not something that I teach directly, but I think as a scientist at the level where you're teaching medical students or undergraduates, sourcing is always something that's important. And so we always teach our students to go to the actual research articles if they can. If not, certainly go to reputable sources. This could be journal articles or it could be scientists themselves or publications like the New York Times or the Washington Post, not probably Facebook. How effective do you think the vaccines as a whole have been to date? Well, I should start by saying I'm not an immunologist. I'm not a virologist. So my understanding is based on the literature that's available to the general public. But I think of the three approved for use in the U.S., clinical trials have shown that all are safe and effective, meaning that they do a great job at protecting people against getting severely sick. And having said that, research is still continuing beyond the clinical trial stage on individuals in real-world conditions. And so far, that evidence has been pretty positive. Most data in the real-world settings is on the mRNA vaccines, 
created by Pfizer, BioNTech, and Moderna because they've been available to the public for longer. And I'm sure data will be reported for the Johnson & Johnson vaccine as it becomes available. But overall, the vaccines have proven to be very effective. So much press is being given to the mutation of COVID now with the Delta variant. What does it exactly mean that a virus mutates? Basically, anytime any type of an organism replicates, it has the propensity to undergo mutations in its genome. In the case of the coronavirus, mutations, again, are simply changes in the genome that occur each time the virus replicates. And these changes are detrimental to the virus. They probably make it less it. But sometimes changes make a virus better at infecting or surviving inside human cells. And these special variants can easily take over when there are ample human hosts that allow essentially a playground for replication and propagation. So this is what we're currently seeing with this Delta variant. There was a mutation that occurred, the normal process in viruses, and this change led to altered surface structure, which renders the virus capable of better transmission and evading our immune system. And we know that there are significantly more viral particles in the airways of patients infected with Delta relative to other strains. Even though you're not a virologist per se, when do you see life returning to normal and what might normal look like? This is the million dollar question. If you look throughout history at various pandemics, sometimes an outbreak or pandemic is contained and the epidemic is quelled. But other times we learn to live with the disease or we see sporadic outbreak for years. This is the case with bubonic plague, for example. With COVID, some historians have predicted that this coronavirus pandemic will end socially before it ends medically. In other words, we will grow tired of the restrictions and return to a more normal way of life while accepting some level of disease and risk and death. And we can already see that happening in parts of the U.S. You've spent so much time educating people on, as you said earlier in our interview, real world information, yet there are so many millions of people across the world that are taking a wait and see attitude about getting vaccinated. What would be your message or your thoughts to that group of people, please? We know that the highest spread of cases and severe outcomes is in places with low vaccination rates. Virtually all hospitalizations and deaths have been among the unvaccinated. This situation is really like none of us living have ever experienced before. It's hard to even comprehend the number of individuals dying and the toll on our healthcare workers and on the economy. I have friends and relatives living overseas in countries where the vaccine is not available. So I think in the U.S. we are extremely privileged to have had early access to vaccines. I find it a little frustrating to see vaccine going to waste here while the virus continues to propagate, allowing variants to emerge. The overall evidence that we have indicates that vaccination provides excellent protection. As a scientist, what keeps you up at night the most about the entire pandemic? Like many, my thinking has evolved. I was kind of in a state of confusion in the beginning, like everyone else. And I think as the data have come in, it became clear that we could get this under control if we took the right measures. I was very optimistic and hopeful when the vaccines were first approved for use. And now I think I have become very concerned that we are not going to 
conquer this, that this is something that we are going to have to live with. It has become quite clear to me that for whatever reason, and the reasons are varied, that certain individuals are very reluctant to get vaccinated. And so I worry that this will be with us for a long period of time. And I worry about the toll it is going to take on people's mental health and the economy and so on and so forth. Dr. Bascom Slack, thank you so very much. Sure, you're welcome. Thank you. Dr. Carol Bascom-Slack, Assistant Professor of Medical Education at Tufts University. Back to you, Don. Thanks, Greg. And that's part one of our look at the vaccination debate. In our next episode, we'll see if there really is a debate. Support for the language of business is from Boston University Questrom School of Business. We now have downloads in 77 countries in 42 states, plus D.C. and Puerto Rico. We appreciate the support. If you like our podcast, please mention it to someone and subscribe. The Language of Business is available wherever you get podcasts or ask Alexa. Our social media is by Jennifer Powell of the Excellent Writers Group. Music by Randy Barth of Oswee Media. Consulting producer, Helen Tierney of Happy Accident Productions. Direction, audio editing, and voiceover by yours truly. Special thanks to Mike Carruthers of somethingyoushouldknow.net. For Greg Stoller and the entire team, I'm Don Kelly. Thanks for listening to The Language of Business.